Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Will you turn in the book of Luke tonight to chapter 6? We're going to start reading verses 17. Luke chapter 6, verses 17. You ready for something new? Here we go. Verse 17 says this, When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, some might call it a plain, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone. Praise God. That is my Jesus. He was a miracle worker. He is a miracle worker. Let's pray as we get started with this new series. Lord, I love you. I thank you that you are phenomenal, that you are beyond our imagination. You are beyond any human capability. You are that good. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us as we go into this new series. I pray that you would reveal your character to us. Let us be transformed by who you are and by your goodness through us that we might know you better. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. The, uh, this upcoming Sunday is five weeks away from Easter, so if you're counting Wednesdays, there'd be six Wednesdays, including tonight, that would take you all the way until Easter. I know I've got some people in the room who uh, grew up in a Catholic church, and so they might be familiar with the word Lent or with the Lenten season. Um, uh, it's interesting that the word Lent is actually an old English word, so it's not, you can't find the word Lent in the Bible, and the word Lent just means lengthen, so like to stretch out that time as you're leading up towards Easter, to slow down, to really process what's happening, and to bring a sense of awe to the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to let that, let that time period slow down. So Lent actually would have started last Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. Um, I, I want to say this. I had a really great conversation this afternoon with someone from our church who had had a very uh, painful experience in the Catholic Church growing up, and so I just want to be really clear that I'm talking about Lent, but this is in no way an endorsement towards Catholicism. Um, there's a lot of things there that I think are interesting, and there's a lot of things I have a lot of trouble with. Um, if you want to know what those things are, catch me later. I'm not shy. I did have the opportunity two weeks ago. I went and visited the Holy Hill Basilica. Has anyone been there? So yeah, so it's like this gorgeous cathedral that's out near West Bend. And being in there reminded me of a couple things that I do admire about the practice of the ancient church. You know, walking into this building, uh, if you tour around the building, you can kind of see the different phases that our church was built in. And so even though, you know, the chapel's remodeled, if someone who was here when it was originally built, when you walk down there, you have this memory of, wow, God has been really faithful to our church through all of these decades that God has been with Oak Creek Assembly of God. There are worshipers who worshiped in that building who are now in the presence of God. That's really cool to think about this testimony of faith that's behind us. Well, 
Same thing, but when you walk into some cathedral that is 200, 400, or over in Europe, 1,000 or 1,500 years old, there is a sense of sacredness that exists there of, wow, this church is not just what's happening now. There is worshipers who are in this space worshiping Jesus hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And I think there is something very beautiful about sacredness, about having a holy approach, that God is holy. And if it isn't for the blood of Jesus, we don't get to be with him. So it is only by his blood that we can walk in there. And when we approach God, when we move into relationship with him, there should be something thoughtful about that process. And so that really is the concept of Lent, is taking 40 days to methodically stir up some awe about the crucifixion and the resurrection, what exactly happened on that cross, and what exactly happened in that tomb. Now, as I've already said, I'm not Catholic, although the more I talk about this, the more a fish fry just sounds really good. So we're not going to celebrate Lent. We're going to find our own path, but we are going to take a path of taking these next six weeks and looking forward towards Easter, preparing our hearts for what God would have us think and do and worship through this time, and our pathway is we're going to spend six weeks leaning into the Sermon on the Plain. Now, I know what your follow-up question is. What is the Sermon on the Plain? (laughs) First of all, if anyone's listening on the podcast, I need to make sure you know I'm saying P-L-A-I-N, plain, and not P-L, not airplane, although I do feel like Sermon on the Plain would be a great, like, title for a new Pure Flix movie. So, (laughs) Sermon on the plain on the grass is a sermon that's found in Luke chapter 6. So in Luke chapter 6, Luke groups together this collection of Jesus' teaching. It is similar to the larger group of teaching in Matthew, which is the sermon on the mount. It's similar, but it's not the same. And so we're going to take some time and go through this sermon on the plain in the next six weeks, getting our hearts ready for Easter. Now, today is going to be a little bit different because today is going to really feel just like an introduction week to this. There's a lot of different topics in this sermon, and it just felt like too much to introduce the Sermon on the Plain and to jump into the first topic on the first week. So we're going to take today, and we're just going to kind of slow down a little bit, take our time, and introduce ourselves. And what I want to do is I want to introduce you to two things here today. I want to introduce you to Luke And I want to introduce you to the Sermon on the Plain. So let's start off with Luke, the person who wrote this account of the gospel, the gospel of Luke. Interesting, the name Luke is actually nowhere in the gospel of Luke. You can find Luke's name at three other places in the New Testament, but you don't find it anywhere in the gospels. And this makes the gospel of Luke kind of stand out from the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of John. Because you see, Matthew and John, they were in the room. Matthew and John were sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. They were there as it happened, and then they are then writing to say, here's what I experienced. Well, this was not Luke's process. Luke starts writing the Gospel of Luke about 30 years after Jesus ascends into heaven. It's a fair amount of time. Jesus dies on the cross, raises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and 30 years later, 
Luke starts writing down the story, which makes Luke's approach really different. Luke is the observer. He is the researcher. He is the historian. Luke is the organizer. And the reason that I say that Luke is the organizer is because the gospel of Luke isn't always sequential, meaning it's not always this happened and then this happened. There are choices that Luke is making in the way that he's grouping the stories of Jesus the things he wants us to know, and the order in which he wants us to know those things. And because we know that Luke is the historian, that he is the observer, that he is the organizer, we have to believe that Luke had a reason why he was telling us the things the way he was telling us. Can I remind you how the book of Luke opens? So Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 says this. Many people here set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us, They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Do you hear that tone? He is the historian. He is the researcher. People have said these things, but now I've taken my time And I'm going to figure this out. We know that Luke was a doctor because uh, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, it tells us that he was a doctor. We know that Luke was an evangelist and a co-worker with with Paul because in 2 Timothy and in Philemon, it tells us those things as well. So we're picking up things about him, but in the book of Luke, he's not really there. What's interesting, too, is that Luke is a pair book, which, again, I need to explain is P-A-I-R and not the fruit. It's like hominin night at Oak Creek Assembly of God. So it's a pair book, which is kind of, I had a little joy working on this this week, because if you think about it, we actually just left a series that was on a pair book, right? Because Nehemiah that we just got through, Nehemiah and Ezra were two books that were originally written as one book, and now we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of Luke was not written to be alone. Luke writes two books in the New Testament. He writes the Gospel of Luke, and he writes Acts, Interesting little thing is that, you know, Paul writes more books in the Bible than any other person, but Luke actually writes more of the New Testament than any other person, because between the book of Luke and the book of Acts, two books written by the same person, he sits down to tell this great, great story. Can I remind you how Acts opens? So Acts 1.1 says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, same guy, about everything Jesus began to do and to teach. Wouldn't it be cool to be Theophilus, to be like, hey, two books of the Bible were written to me. I'm, I'm Theo. Like, it'd be a, that'd be a cool deal. But this is what Luke's story was. This is what his process was. Luke is writing these two books, and, and, and now he is methodically organizing what is the most important story the world will ever know. From the birth of Jesus Christ to the formation of the new church, Luke is sitting down 30 to 40 years after Christ has ascended to write down the most important story the world the world will ever know. Let's talk about a little bit of this organization. So if I give you like a flyover of the first five chapters of Luke, it looks like this. So Luke chapter 1 and 2, he's telling you two things. He's telling you where did Jesus come from and where did John the Baptist come from. And he wants to point out what, what their story is, where did these guys come from, how did they get here. Luke chapters 3, 4, and 5 is really just the kickoff of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is going, 
He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Some, he's being baptized. These amazing things are happening. And this crowd, this like massive crowd of people is starting to follow this man named Jesus. But what's interesting to me is that during chapter 3, 4, and 5, Jesus is a teacher. So he's teaching during this time. He's not just healing people. He's teaching and preaching as he goes. But yet Luke is not ready yet to tell us exactly what Jesus is saying. He has this process. There's this order of Luke wanting you to know things in the order that he wants you to know them. I want to put up a list here of of three things I think Luke wants you to know before he lets you read the Sermon on the Plain. So the first thing is that Luke wants you to know that Jesus was born of a supernatural birth. This guy came out of a miracle. He was not born the way that you and I were born. He was born of a supernatural birth, and you need to know that this guy started with a miracle. Number two, Luke wants you to know that Jesus himself was supernatural. He didn't just come from a miracle. This man is a walking, talking miracle. There are things about the way that he operates that does not operate by the rules or the laws of this world. He is beyond this world. Jesus is supernatural. And then number three, Luke wants you to understand the magnitude of what is happening. Don't think this is a small deal. Israel is going nuts. People are following him everywhere. This thing is exploding. Something crazy is happening. You know, this is affecting cities and religious leaders and government leaders, Jews and Gentiles. Now, can I show you what's in the passage immediately before the Sermon on the Plain? And I want to keep chipping away at this question of what does Luke want you to know before he lets you read the Sermon on the Plain? Luke 6, 12 through 13 says this. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up, to, up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Okay, so pop quiz, and I'm going to warn you, this is a trick question. How many disciples did Jesus have? A lot more than 12, okay? So we often use the words disciples and apostles as interchangeable, but this verse here kind of explains that it's not the same thing, that Jesus had all of these disciples. There were many people who had said, this guy's the real deal. I'm going to leave my responsibilities, occupation. I'm going to go follow him. I'm going to give him everything that I've got. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Pack my bags. Here we go. There were a lot of people who had done this. There wasn't just 12. And so one day, Jesus does this crazy thing. He goes up in the mountain. He prays all night. And then he, he comes back and he picks out 12 of the whole group of disciples. And he puts them, this in charge. This may not be a big deal to you. This was a huge deal. And let me explain why. So in 2022, the number 12 might not be like a really significant number in your life. You know, 12 months in the year, a dozen donuts, 12 drummers drumming. And so, but in Israel, everything in Israeli culture existed in 12ths. So Abraham was the grandfather of Israel. He had a grandson named Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and then God made Jacob's 12 sons, Israel's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a culture where everything exists in 12ths. So if I want to figure out who you are, you're going to tell me your name, where are you from, and then what 12th do you belong to? What family group do you belong to? And so 
it's just really important that when Jesus doesn't pick out 10 leaders or 13 leaders, it's not that he just had 12 and 12 is what he went with. Jesus chooses 12 leaders in a culture where everything operates in 12ths, and this sign cannot be understated. Jesus is not joining the system. Jesus is restarting the system. Jesus says, Israel, it's time for a restart. These were the 12 guys. These are the 12 guys. These are my 12 guys. And if you were in Israel and you heard that Jesus had picked out 12 guys and put them in charge, you would start freaking out. What's going on? I think there's three questions that the people of Israel would have been asking as they came down that mountain that day. I think one of them is they would say, what is Jesus about to do? What is going on? This is not normal. There's this huge crowd of people following. This guy just picked out 12 leaders. Is he restarting a nation? What is Jesus doing? I think number two, people are asking, what will Jesus' kingdom be like? Okay. We've seen some kingdoms before. And if this guy is going to be the king of the Jews, as some people are saying, what's this going to be like? Is this going to be like Moses? Is this, is this going to feel like when King David was in charge? Is this going to be one of those failed revolutions of Jesus' time period? How does this kingdom operate? What is Jesus' kingdom going to be like? And then thirdly, I think they're asking, how do I join in? Like, what's, what's going on? What's this going to be like? And how do I join in? At this point, there's kind of three groups of people that are following Jesus. There's the crowd, and the crowd is like a really diverse group of fans and critics that are mostly watching. Then there's the disciples, this large group of people, people like you and me, who are said, I'm going to follow that Jesus. I'm going to go where he goes. I think he's the real deal. And then there's these 12 men that are the apostles who've just been put in charge. And so how do I, how do I get into this? What's expected of me if I'm going to join in? I want to put one more brick in the foundation of this series, and it circles around two Greek words. I'm going to put them on the screen here, and it is polus and plethos. These are Greek words, uh, the book of Luke, as the whole New Testament is written in the language of Greek. And so when you really want to find out what the writer was writing, sometimes it's beneficial to go back to the language in which the writer wrote. And so these words, polus, plethos, if I can explain them, uh, po- it's pronounced polus, but it looks like polys, which then you might recognize as a Latin root for many. It's like monotheistic or polytheistic. Um, you would recognize that word just to mean much or many. And then the second word over here, plethos, means a multitude or a great number. These words are really interesting to me because of the very specific way that Luke uses them. And he uses it twice in the first 20 chapters of Luke. And I'm going to tell you about those two times. The first time is in Luke chapter 5. And there's this argument that Jesus and Peter have about fishing. So Jesus had been teaching, although Luke didn't tell us what he was teaching yet because he's waiting. But Jesus had been teaching all day. He was tired. He was hungry. The day was over. It was time to get dinner. And so Jesus says, put out your nets, let's get some fish. Well, Peter had been fishing the whole night before. Peter knew there was nothing to be caught. Peter's the master fisherman. He says, Jesus, there's nothing in the water. It's, it's the middle of the day. This is not the right time to be fishing. There's, there's not going to be anything. And so Jesus says, hi, I'm Jesus. Try again. And so Peter goes, okay, fine. I'm going to go out into the deep, and I'm going to cast my net out one more time. And when he does, a polus plethos amount of fish come into the nets. 
Those are the words that Luke uses, many multitudes. And Peter is overwhelmed by the amount of fish. It is more than he expected. It is more than he imagined as these fish. He's got to get other boats involved in order to get all of these fish into the shoreline because he is overwhelmed by a polus plethos of fish. There's one other time that Luke uses these words in the first 20 chapters of Luke, and it's in the very first verse we read tonight, the verse that leads right into the Sermon on the Plain. Can we read that again? This is verse 17. It says, when they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. Now, this is a New Living Translation. The word crowds kind of lands a little bit flat, but that word crowds in Greek is polus plethos. Only time he pairs this together. When he walks down, there is this people and the same mood, the same feeling that Peter felt when he was overwhelmed by all of these fish coming in. Luke says, and then they came down from the mountain and there was a polus plethos of people. There was many people. There was more than they could imagine. There was more than they expected. And they were overwhelmed by the people that were coming to Jesus. These great multitudes, many multitudes of people coming to Jesus. And when they came to Jesus, they had these questions. And the questions were, is there, what is Jesus about to do? What will Jesus' kingdom be like? And how do I join in? They wanted to know the answers. And the Sermon on the Plain is those answers. So check this out. 30 to 40 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, Luke sits down to start writing an accurate account of what Jesus did, who he was, how he rose from the grave how the newly formed church was made. And why did Luke do that? Luke did that because he saw a polus plethos of people. He understood that 30 to 40 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven, this story was not over. This story was going to have a future that would go beyond his lifetime, beyond his language, beyond his imagination. And I believe that Luke saw you. I think he saw nations. I think he saw languages that weren't his own language and times beyond him that he was sitting down to write the greatest story that's ever been told. And and that the questions that people had as they stepped onto the plane that day are the same questions that we have, that the same questions that people in your family, people in your community, people at your workplace still have today and still desperately need to be answered. What is Jesus about to do? What will Jesus' kingdom be like? And how do I join in? These are the answers that we're going to look at too. We're going to look after in this series. Next week, we're going to jump into the first topic in the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Jamie Herbst is our guest speaker who's actually hanging out here. Jamie's my friend. I feel like I've made fun of you so many times from this stage that it's only right that I finally give you a mic. Jamie is a deacon and a worship leader, and he's taught one of our Sunday groups for a long time with his wife, Joy. And so he's going to be here next week. I'm here too, but he'll be speaking to lead us through the first section of the Sermon on the Plain. I know that today has been kind of just this broad introduction to this, but if you'll allow me as we close, I want to kind of turn a different corner here, and I want to ask you about your uh, preparation for Easter. One of the things that we had to do in the last two weeks 
that's been just a little stressful, if I'm fully honest, is we had to lock in all of our Easter plans here at the church. We had to make all of our schedule of, of what are we doing for Easter? You know, what are all the, the events and the timings of the events and how many of the events are we having? You know, for us, the church here, we're kind of targeting it as, as three opportunities. The first one is our musical, which is Palm Sunday weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it's called Not Just Stories. That'll be a big performance uh, Easter story with uh, tickets and just the whole kind of musical event. And then we've got Good Friday, which will be a very somber and solemn service on Good Friday at noon. And then we have our Easter services on Easter Sunday, 8, 9, 30, and 11. So making all of those plans, we have to make these decisions about like, okay, you know, COVID, blah, blah, blah. You're like, what's, what's going to happen? Who's going to be here? What's our invite power going to be? What should we do to prepare? What times would people, would people prefer? We have to answer all these questions. And in the process of answering all these questions, we've learned something over the years that we just think is true. And I don't think it's just true here. I think it's for every church um, in America and most churches in the world, is that for our community, Easter is less popular than Christmas. And for those who aren't in the church, like, I totally get it. Uh, the, the gifts aren't as good. The, the, the music isn't as catchy. That, like, that there's, there's not that appeal. For those who are in Christ, I want to really challenge you to make Easter the pinnacle of your faith. That out of all of the days in the year, there is one time that our faith hangs on without the resurrection of Christ there is nothing. Paul said, if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're all just playing games and we're all fools. But if Christ was raised from the dead, if Easter is Easter, then it is the center of the Christian faith, and we should make it that way in our practices. So as we're walking through the next six weeks, I kind of have this closing question for your table, but it comes in a couple parts, and I want to just kind of walk them through with you first before I hand it over to you. So the first one here is, is there something to give up? Um, the practice of giving something up really is just a nice trigger to think about Christ. So if from now until Easter there was something in your habit, something in your diet, something in your entertainment that you decided to say no to for the next six weeks, here's what will happen. Is your habit of having that thing in your life, every time that it's not there, your soul is going to go, Easter's coming. And you're going to stop and go, ah, I took this out of my life for the next six weeks, so I would remember that Easter is coming and that I should have a sacred, thoughtful approach to what God did on that cross and in that tomb. Second question is, is there something to add in? There's something to just, rather than take away, to, to add in to your habits. If there was a reading habit I would challenge you with, you know, we're going to stick right in Luke chapter 6, this whole series. I think a great reading challenge would be to read the whole gospel of Luke during the next six weeks. It's not too much. You could do it if you did a chapter a day. You would get there in time. And so to read through the gospel of Luke as your heart is approaching Easter, I think is something that would help you kind of keep that mindset as we go through the next six weeks. And the other one I want to ask is, is there something to plan for? You know, we talked about the, the things that, you know, make a huge impact in my life is, is the planning, is like making a celebration, a celebration. If you think about all the work that you do for Christmas, like all of the gifts that you get, all of the parties that you plan, all of the things you put together, like the decorations you put up, and just that intention that you have in your life towards celebrating for Christmas, can I invite you to plan some intention into your Easter? Like, don't go fishing that weekend. Be at church. 
Make Christ the center of your Easter experience. Don't just like go to Golden Corral afterwards. Like make something good. Like invite some people over. Do something. Make this a celebration. If you're a grandparent and you buy like really good Christmas gifts, buy some really good Easter gifts and let your children, grandchildren have a joy about Easter. It's not just another Sunday. Make this the way that you design your home culture, your work culture, your friend culture. That's the pattern that lives out. I think that you could sit together tonight by yourself or with a spouse and plan something cool for Easter this year that is meaningful to the people that you love, that puts the cross at the center of what we focus on and the center of your faith in your life. So I'm going to pray for you tonight, and then I'm just going to let you kind of mull over these questions at your table. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you're good. I thank you so much that you have given us a testimony of your son. I thank you for the gospel of Luke. I thank you that you are allowing us to spend this time going through this and studying. Reveal things to us. Teach us your ways. I pray that you would be in our thinking over the next six weeks. Allow us to slow down if we are rushing too fast, if we are brushing you aside in any way. Holy Spirit, convict us. Get our attention that we might be in right relationship with you and that might we might stir up a sense of awe about who you are and what you did. We love you. I thank you for every person in this room tonight. I pray that you would allow them to leave here encouraged, that they would know their relationship with you and that they would know and trust that when they call upon your name, you listen and you respond. You are a good and merciful God and we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.